very large topic tonight. I want to start out by talking about attraction, how sexuality sort of starts, how a relationship starts. In my first year of medical school, I was sitting in the medical school library. It was actually the first week of medical school. I entered medical school, I had just turned 20. So I was young, and I was sitting there, and it was Friday night. And I didn't want to be in the medical school library studying the bones of the hand. I wanted to have a date. And so as I was daydreaming, I saw this dietitian that I had seen earlier that week. And I just stopped studying immediately. And I said my first prayer in medical school, something like, oh, please let her come this way. (laughs) And would you know, she started walking toward me. Well, my heart sped up, and I was not believing this, and I said, and and let her stop at my cubicle. And sure enough, she stopped at my cubicle. I almost fell out of my chair. And I looked up at her, and I felt that I uh, had this dry mouth. I couldn't even speak. And this is sort of the kind of woman who could make you write bad checks. It was, <laughs> as a 20-year-old, I, I was just, my mind seemed to go blank. And she said to me, are you a medical student? Well, I was excited. I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I couldn't speak, and so I just nodded, and I said, mm-hmm. And then she asked me another question. She said, what year are you? I was so excited. I knew the answer to that question. (laughs) I held up one finger. I said, first year. And then it was entirely unexpected. She sort of looked at me, wrinkled her nose, and said, I'm actually looking for a third or fourth year, but thanks anyway. And she kept walking. (laughs) I was crushed. And I looked back, and sure enough, she found a third year, and she left with him. Now, there's a reason I got into medical school at 20. And so I'm always looking for the shortcut, thinking, well, what does he have that I don't have? And just being just out of my teens, I'm thinking big muscles, a car. You know, what is it that women want? And I thought, you know what he has? He has a pager. That's why she's going with him. So I went down to the hospital operator and I said, can you give me a pager? And she said, you're a first-year medical student. Nobody needs you. You don't know anything. Well, not to be outdone, I went home and I realized that the pagers actually looked a lot like my garage door opener. I went to a party with my garage door opener attached to my belt. And I had no better success than I had in the library. 
So what happens to men's minds when they see a woman who's attractive? What is it that happens to us? We all joke about it, but what's going on? Well, the studies show us that plenty is going on. If you put a man in a laboratory and you give him a cognitive test, he will take the test, and then the second part of the test, you send him to a room to wait for the rest of the testing. But in that room, you put an attractive woman. When he comes back to take the second half of his test, he will not be as smart as he was during the first part of the test. (laughs) Not only will his scores fall, but if you ask him how attractive he thought the woman was, the more attractive he felt the woman was, the lower his scores on the test. So you're wondering, okay, how far does this dynamic go? If you put a man in a cubicle and you put a computer screen in front of him, and you say, we want you to take a test of cognitive function, so he takes the test. The second part of the test, we'd like you to do a lip-reading experiment, and we have someone who's going to observe you up pops a little chat window on his screen, and it says, Hi, my name is Lisa. I will be observing you doing your lip reading through the webcam on the computer. He, does his, he reads some words, he mouths some words into the webcam and believes Lisa is watching him. When he takes the second part of the test, what happens? His scores drop. Now, the interesting thing is that there is no photo of Lisa. There is no voice of Lisa. Actually, there is no Lisa. It's a computer. There is no woman watching him, and his scores dropped. He thinks there's a woman watching him, and his scores drop, and he's never seen her. So there is power in how we think or fail to think when we are faced with someone we find attractive. The spiritual implications of this are that this attraction can be used by women in a predatory fashion, and often it is, that men, whether women know it or not, can be very distracting, whether it's in business, whether it's in places of worship, that men are susceptible to being unable to concentrate well if they're distracted. A different body of research looked at how we can misinterpret who we're attracted to or why we are attracted They took a woman, and they put her on a wooden bridge 10 feet off a small creek. And as men, ages 18 to 35, crossed the bridge, she asked them if they would take a short survey. 
They took the survey. At the end of the survey, she tore a corner of the paper off, wrote her phone number and her name on it, and said, please call this number this evening if you're interested in knowing more about the study. 12.5% of the surveyed people called her. Same woman, but you put her on a bridge that was over a canyon and a, a, a rapids, a, a river running through it, 230 feet off the ground. Halfway across the bridge, the bridge is a, a suspension bridge, so it's moving a bit. And as the men come across, she does exactly the same thing. Same survey, same questions, writes her number, tears it off, and gives it to them. 50% of the men call that night. And the study concludes, this is what we call a misattribution of arousal. Misattribution of arousal. I think you're wonderful, and I believe it's caused by you and not by my surroundings. The fear, the stress, the adventure seems to make our relationships draw together. It was about this season, and there was a... I don't like scary movies, but I had this desire to take this nurse to this scare house, this fright house, supposed to give you a scare about this time of the year. So we went into the first room, and it, the lights were low. There was a black light, and there was a coffin, and out popped a, a Frankenstein mannequin. Ooh, it was, it was scary. Just I, I was pretty happy that I was going to be able to handle this. And of course, she was grabbing onto my arm even tighter, and I was giving her a little of that bicep that we do when we're younger. But we went into the second room, and out from the door came a man with blue jeans and a, and a white shirt. And it's a black light, so the white was very bright. And he turned toward me, and he had a hockey mask on, and he started a chainsaw. Ring, 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 a live chainsaw, and he started running toward me. Now, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I've used a chainsaw and taken chainsaw safety. And I freaked out. And I turned around so fast, I threw her like a sack of potatoes against the wall. And I ran out of that building. Well, she was not so sure that I was the one that she wanted to protect her from that point forward. But imagine yourself, you meet someone, and perhaps, perhaps it's a very exciting scenario. It is, whatever, a business meeting, an adventure, and you meet this person. And because of the environment, you feel this chemistry, this attraction for them. There's another chemical that comes into play if you begin a sexual relationship with them. In fact, this chemical even occurs if we hug one another. It's called oxytocin. And with oxytocin, it forms a bond. 
not only does it form a bond, it actually, the research shows that it makes the person more trustworthy. So you meet this person in a very exciting setting. You have a relationship with them sexually, and now you believe that they are trustworthy, and your family and friends are trying to tell you that that's not true. But as they say, love is blind, you cannot see it because of the chemistry. And I want you to understand how so many mistakes are made because we don't understand perhaps misattribution of arousal or we don't understand that this oxytocin, we've entered into a relationship that has gone beyond what the emotional or spiritual intimacy can handle and we are now sort of a prisoner of these chemicals and it takes often years for someone to work out of that. So we've all had friends or family members we've tried to counsel and say, look, this probably is not a good idea. I don't think this person has the character that you are looking for and the person cannot see it. But when you realize that these types of chemicals are come into play, you can be wiser. After menopause, I find that I am no longer attracted to my husband. What should I do? Well, medically, menopause is... um, The ovaries have stopped producing progesterone and estrogen, the female hormones. So often the symptoms of that, sleep disturbance, Mm -hmm. uh, can be... Um, vaginal atrophy, there can be um, loss of libido is one of them. So there, there can be a lot of disturbance. Just from the sleep disturbance alone, there can be a loss of libido. But the uh, menopause, not every woman has the same symptoms. This, there's a security component in the sexual relationship. There's security and significance. Do can I be open to you, vulnerable to you? Mm-hmm. Am I free to make mistakes? I mean, what we have here is my biology is changing. Can I trust you to be sensitive to my change? Are you going to be there for me or is your love for me performance-based? And mm-hmm. many of us have grown up in a family where our love, where love is a performance-based and perhaps even experience that acted out in the marriage. So Mm -hmm. having security, do you have my back? Are you going to stick up for me? Are you going to still be with me if I'm unable to do this? And, you know, how safe do you feel with your husband? You know, how the, um, the lack of attraction, there's a lot of things. I mentioned the security. Do you feel safe? Do you have doubts that they really are devoted to you? Second part of that being significance. How significant do you feel to your partner? Mm-hmm. And a big component of that is affirmations. You know, I love it when you do this. Are you regularly giving and receiving affirmations yes. between each other? Because if you're not, mm-hmm. oftentimes, especially as we age, men will feel, uh, well, what good am I? Learn. You think everyone's the same. Well, they must be just like you are. And so the sensitivity, I think the sexual relationship by definition needs a lot of conversation. Yes. And that is something that most of us 
are assuming we can't talk about mm-hmm. with the one person we should be able to talk about. I think even God made it so that you really have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Or quickly you're going to develop some oh, dislikes. This next question actually moves into even a younger person. Say, my son plays video games that have sexual themes. He says that fantasy is not reality and that it is not sin on the Internet. What do you recommend? Here's the question again. That my son plays video games that have sexual themes. He says that fantasy is not reality and that it is not sin on the Internet. Well, my first thought is, does what we think about matter to God? I mean, essentially, you're saying it's on the Internet, so it doesn't count. Hmm. Excuse me. You know, the interesting thing about what Jesus says is your fantasy life is very important. When you go to the future or you fantasize, when you lust for a woman in that imaginary world, it actually impacts this one. Mm -hmm. That your thoughts are not benign that in fact what we know about thoughts, they actually have physical structure. They're not just air or nothing. They actually form physical structure in your brain. And if you start having them over and over, they form large highways in your brain. Mm -hmm. It is tragic that so many of the video games, the violence, and now having actually the ability to have cyber sex on these games really is destructive to our mm-hmm. kids, not just teens, but even preteens. But my, my, my first thought is, yes, this, your, your thoughts matter to God, and I would start with the education there. Yes, yeah, cyber, sex, any of the, I mean, it is pornography, essentially. Yes. We are experiencing images that are meant to arouse, that are meant to you know, promote this sexual experience. Isn't it? it is, and obviously the earlier the experience, the more susceptible the brain, just like your first drug experience, your first sexual experience, pornography experience, video experience, it essentially is like poison weaving itself into the fabric of the mind. It, mm-hmm. it, and it's very difficult to get rid of, but not impossible. But the earlier that experience happens, just like people who experience a drug use at an early age, the brain starts to sort of form around that. Yes. We are creatures designed for joy, to experience joy and to experience joy in relationship. And joy produces this dopamine response. Well, dopamine is also produced by sex and by drugs and by chocolate and by any number of other things. And the more powerful that response, the more of that we want. So it's meant to be experienced in a safe relationship yes. uh, and a healthy relationship. Unfortunately, so many of us don't experience a healthy relationship in our childhood. And so we are very susceptible to wanting pseudo-joy or more of this dopamine and mm-hmm. looking for other sources for it. So once we hit puberty or once we find video games, um, we jump in with both feet because we haven't experienced the true joy of relationship mm-hmm. um, with our parents primarily. 
Hugs. I mean, hugs. That's a great one. Yeah. Appropriate physical touch, I think, is so important and perhaps so lacking. Yes. Uh, I mean, we're all on our phones and communicating, and the studies are saying this is not true, fulfilling communication to get a text. We need face to face. We need to see the joy in someone's smile. Uh, Dr. Jim Wilder, someone who has really given me a lot of this information when I talk about joy, has done a lot of research in that. Is he's saying that you know we are looking for this this pleasure all of, from the time that we're a baby, basically. We're looking mm-hmm. for temperature. We're looking for some food. You know, we're crying out for this. And so as we enter puberty and sexuality comes upon us, if we don't have appropriate hugs in the family, we don't have uh, appropriate touch, we are not being built up, we're not being affirmed, we're not being told that we're appreciated, we're much more susceptible to looking for it outside in dangerous ways. I would say that for teens, this is something that how should a teenage boy use his strength? Have we even thought about that as parents? Hmm. How should a teenage boy use his strength? Because he's got a lot of strength. He's got a lot of energy. I mean, most of the vandalism is not done by 40 and 50-year-olds. It's done by teenage boys. They've got all of this energy. What is an appropriate use of that strength? Because I can tell you what the media is telling them. Mm. Use it to dominate. Use it to um, humiliate. Use it to tease. Use it to overpower. Use your strength to get what you want. Get some money. Get your sexual needs met. But we're not actually taught in our families what our strength is for. We we don't Mm -hmm. seem to have other options. Mm -hmm. You know, who is telling us that your strength is to help the widows and the orphans? Mm -hmm. Your strength Mm -hmm. is to do good over here. Let me show you how to do that, and I'm going to show you how rewarding that is to help you use your strength in a positive way. Teenage girls, what's your beauty for? I mean, who's asking that question? What is beauty for? Why did God bless some people with specific types of beauty, the kind that turns your head uh, in the checkout line, and some people without that. What, what's it for? And most teenage girls would say, well, it's for me. It's for me to get a man. It's for me to attract people. It's for me to get some attention for myself. Mm-hmm. What, else, what do you think it's for? Well, what did, what did God give you this beauty for? You know, when a beautiful person blesses someone and talks to them and spends time and looks in their eyes, somehow that is worth more than if someone who's not beautiful does it. I don't know why that's the case, but it is the case. This gift of this beauty or this figure or whatever blessing God has bestowed you with, your intelligence, your wealth, your position, it's to bless others. And most of our teens are not learning that, so they're looking in a predatory fashion Mm -hmm. how to use their gift to get what they want. And we are not... We're teaching them essentially to be predators and not protectors. Son, your strength is to protect women and children. And daughter, your strength is to protect men, sometimes from yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we uh, become protectors, even 
the use of pornography. Well, I'm not going to look at someone, even if they're giving it to me for free. I'm going to protect them. I'm not going to look at them. Nakedness is something I want to cover because I'm a protector. I'm not an exploiter. One of the things teenage girls love is gossip. Gossip is not protection. Gossip is, I found something about you, and I'm going to use it to, for myself. It feels good to exploit this, to uncover you. And God says, love covers a multitude of sins. And we want to be teaching our young people. They're very powerful and they're feeling it, but they don't know where to go with it. So you've got this child. He's on video games. Now he's moving into some darker games. Let's get him to a place where you can help him uh, direct his strength. What about masturbation? Some doctors advocate it. For health reasons, is it helpful or harmful? This is the question, a very difficult question to discuss. What about masturbation? Some doctors advocate it for health reasons. Is it helpful or harmful? Well, there are many views on this in the secular and the Christian literature. There are, it is harmful, it is neutral, it is helpful. And then some say, well, depending on what you're thinking about when you're doing it, depends on which category that would go into. Orgasm does increase your blood flow. It can be a stress-reducing activity. That's the short-term physiology response. I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, what is sex designed for? Because I can use my smartphone to uh, scoop potato salad, and it will work, but it may limit its lifespan and not do the best job. It's not designed for that. It will work, but that's not what it's designed for. So the sexual union is designed for intimacy, into me, see. It is not just a physiologic genital union. It is a spiritual and a physical union. Mm-hmm. Essentially, mind, body, and spirit. All of the parts of you are being united. God said the two shall become one, and it's more than just physical. It has a, a powerful spiritual implications, which is why throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery and the worship of other gods is almost always combined with temple prostitution. Mm -hmm. Multiple partners, it's all of this. So the sexual relationship, because I'm inferring, because it has such negative consequences, if not used properly, has powerful positive consequences when used properly. Properly means... You are stimulating your partner, and they are stimulating you. That is how it was designed. If I say, I am going to stimulate myself, essentially I have to have a split or a fracture at some level where I use my body to please my mind, to get these chemicals going. And I don't believe that that fracture is healthy, and I believe that that's one of the reasons there's so much shame associated with masturbation, whether people are people of faith or not. It's sort of a humiliating thing, and people don't want to talk about it. 
And I believe that is because it is not an integrating, which means coming together, a positive thing. It becomes a disintegrating. I'm actually tearing myself down. So the oxytocin that would be produced with this orgasm is not really doing me a favor. It's not bonding me to anything. It's not making me like myself more. It's actually making me like myself less. So my thought would be, what is the proper design for this, and am I using it according to its design? Well, sexuality, always stepping back, saying, not only is it designed for, I said it was designed for this intimacy, intimacy, I want to be one with you, but one of the components that we forget is that God wants to be involved in our sexuality. Mm -hmm. And we have learned from the world that this is my private closet, Mm -hmm. and he is actually embarrassed by it. And one of the reasons Dr. Welch and I are here talking is God is not embarrassed with sexuality. We need to be discussing this. We don't have all the answers, but we're discussing it. Mm -hmm. So anytime you are doing something, my question is, can you invite God into that relationship? So we could have a stack of questions this high on, is this okay? Is that okay? Is this practice good? My question is for you is, can you invite your creator, your savior, into your sexuality? Whatever that is, whatever choice you want to make, are you comfortable that he's there with you, enjoying it with you? Mm-hmm. And this may be a jump for some of us, even uh, in, in the marriage bed. But I think this is something that we need to get over. They used to have, in the old marriage ceremonies, they used to say, in the ceremony, with our bodies, we the worship. Mm. That was part of the marriage vows. Mm-hmm. With our bodies, we the worship. It is a form of worship. It mm-hmm. is not dirty. It's not perverted. It is a form of worship. But so much baggage we're bringing into our Mm -hmm. marriages because of things that have happened before Um, and perhaps some of the struggles that we're having inside of our marriages, it makes it difficult. And so a lot of married people are using masturbation because they're not getting fulfillment inside of marriage. So we're really saying it's less than what God intended for because God intended for us to be in healthy relationship. This is moving us away from healthy relationship. Right, and, and any, anything can become an addiction. Uh, and so mm-hmm. this also is a way uh, that people use to soothe themselves. Uh, and any addiction can be broken. Mm-hmm. You know, we can fast from it. Mm-hmm. It's hard. The body has a craving that you've built up because you've now, you have a problem, you have stress in your life, and this is what you use to relieve that stress. Uh, often it's linked with pornography. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can break those cycles Often it does take accountability, but it takes someone. Interesting statement. Few of us want to be sick. Everyone, nobody wants to be sick, but few of us actually want to get well. That to get well is going to cost you something. It's, it's, we want microwave solutions, but to get out of addiction often is going to take a lot of work and mm-hmm. some internal drive. And so you'll need to develop those new skills. Anytime you want to break an addiction, 
You need to have healthy relationships because you're looking for joy. You're mm-hmm. looking for joy, and that is found in healthy relationships, but in smaller doses. So you'll need to, as you fast from this, you'll need to pick up some healthy relationships that you're enjoying, some eye contact, people who are glad to be with you. That's not always easy for people who are stay in their room or play video games and those types of things, but parents certainly or other people can encourage them to do that. Okay. Not take a Sabbath. Yeah. What happens if we do not allow our kids to take a Sabbath? from this kind of anxiety producing? Well, the first thing it does, I believe, is separate us from the ability to hear the voice of God. Mm. So often the voice of God is a still, small voice. It is a subtle voice. It comes to you often in those quiet moments. And if you're unable to take a Sabbath, the only time you can hear the voice of God is perhaps in a center of worship, something you've read on a podcast, you, the still small voice you won't be able to hear. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is depression is a huge consequence of anxiety. It burns out the chemicals in your brain that you need to quiet yourself. And so depressed people actually have a tremendous amount of anxiety. Well, I wanted to take uh, a few moments. We're going to be wrapping up shortly, but... Sexuality is an area that virtually everyone has made mistakes in. And I believe I would be remiss if I didn't offer God's grace. Dr. Welch and I are saying, have patience and grace with your partner and with yourself, with your changing biology, with their changing biology, with frustrations, with being sensitive, being kind. Marriage is a metaphor for God's love for us. And as we act out a marriage of one-on-one, I am in love with you, I'm in a covenantal relationship with you, we essentially bring heaven to earth. But many of those relationships have been short-circuited because of sexual problems that occurred before marriage. Some of them were mistakes that you made. Some of them were things that people did to you that you never wanted. Mm-hmm. If we hang on to bitterness against things that people did to us, it will destroy you. It will cause not only sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, it will essentially cause heart failure and so many other things. Bitterness is like a poison you drink and you hope the other person dies. It will destroy you. And I believe there is no greater sort of area of bitterness than some of the sexual problems that have happened to us or perhaps bitterness against ourselves that we've done something that we know hurts someone else. And I want to give you an opportunity now, just a minute to spend some time with God. Remember, that woman caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus, and he did not condemn her. Mm -hmm. And your heavenly Father does not 
condemn you. He is waiting to forgive. He is waiting to help you to forgive that person, maybe that relative. He is so close to those who will humble themselves to ask for forgiveness or give forgiveness. I remind you, forgiveness is like mercy. It is giving somebody something they don't deserve. It is receiving from God what you don't deserve, what I don't deserve, and passing it along. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that in this area of sexuality tonight. Uh, let's just take a minute. Whatever it is, whatever has happened, God wants to help you get over that. So I'm giving you a minute of silence right now. And inviting God in. Mm, yes. If there's one thing I could give you tonight, can you pray and say, Father, you are welcome here. Mm-hmm. Would you help us worship you? Thank you for the beauty mm-hmm. that you created. Hollywood didn't create sexuality. God created sexuality mm-hmm. for your enjoyment. Can you use that in a healthy way and invite him to help you. And if you're having problems, what a great thing to pray about. Uh, what a great way to integrate God. And many of us haven't mm-hmm. even considered that that is an mm-hmm. option and that mm-hmm. God actually wants that. He looks forward to it. He's not embarrassed at all. So that's the number one thing I would try among uh, yeah. things that you might want to try. And shame causes a lot of shame and guilt, a lot of sexual dysfunction. A lot of sexual dysfunction. Um, so. Getting forgiveness, it says in, in James, if um, you know, that that if you're not feeling forgiven, to find someone else. If we confess our sins, you know, confess your sins one to another, mm-hmm. and pray for one another that you may be healed. So there is something. If especially with sexual sin, often we don't feel forgiven because it still sort of haunts us because mm-hmm. the brain has wired it, imprinted mm. it so powerfully. We, yeah. we are forgiven, but we don't feel it. And sometimes going to someone else and confessing is, can be helpful in that as well. God. Thank you, Dr. Levy, for joining us pleasure, this evening. Pleasure. Thank you all for being here this evening.